Well, good morning, First Baptist. Pleasure to be here with you this morning. I've been helping a church down the highway through the book of Acts on Sundays, and we're in Acts chapter 5. So I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles and find your bulletin insert if you'd like to follow along to Acts chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 27. Praise team, I thank you so much for that song. It is one of my absolute favorite hymns. I've got a a plaque on my desk made by a student a couple years ago, and it's got the words to that hymn that I see every day. And I'm so glad that you sang it for us. I heard you practice it last week, and I was excited to hear it last time, and you didn't share it, so I was hoping you saved it for the day, and you did. I've entitled our service this morning, The Issue of Obedience, Being Motivated to Obey. And when it comes to obedience, obedience is something that's all too common, I think, in all of our lives. We all have gone through seasons of obedience training, if you will, especially when we were children. In fact, I'd like to have a little bit of interaction here. How many of you, just by a show of hands, had parents that had a very unique way of motivating you to obey? How many of you maybe were motivated by the switch outside behind the house? Okay. How many of you had parents that made you go get the switch out behind the house? Okay, that's what I thought. How many of you knew that if you ever got in trouble at school, you'd get in trouble at school, but the real trouble is when you came back home, when Dad got off work? That's what I thought. How many of you ever had parents that said, I hope you have children just like you so that you'll know what you've been putting me through? Now, don't raise your hands for this question, but how many of you actually got children just like what they asked for? So, yeah, put the hands down. Don't, don't, don't share that with us. But obedience is something that we're all too familiar with. And I recently read a, a story of obedience actually to an extreme level. In, in Arabia, they train horses. They're in the deserts of the Middle East, and they have a, a very specific training procedure that they make the horses go through. It's one that's very extensive. It's actually pretty extreme and most other creatures couldn't survive. They make the horses go without water for multiple days, almost to the point of exhaustion from dehydration. And they finally release the horses out to some streams of water. And just as the moment the horses are going to drink the water, the trainer blows his whistle. And the horses that are fully trained come back and ignore the water. And they come back exhausted, dehydrated, panning for water. And whenever they see that obedience, the trainer sees that obedience, he lets them go and finally have a drink. And that definitely seems severe to us, but definitely in that context of that desert, the trainers entrust their lives to those horses, and so obedience becomes a life or a death issue. Well, in the life of the believer, obedience is also a life issue. Obedience in the life of a Christian is a clear indication of whether we are developing in our Christian standing, if we are living out the Christian life as God intends us to. But so often we can struggle with this issue of obedience because honestly, Obedience brings back those negative experiences. It brings back this reminder of discipline or maybe punishment. And we can come to God with that same sort of mentality where we oftentimes may fall into the trap of seeing God as a type of cosmic dictator who's going to punish us every time we make a mistake. But biblically speaking, this is not the teaching of obedience. Let me give you the words of Moses back in the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. He was motivating the young group of Israelites as they were going to go to the promised land. And he said these words, Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. He says, love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. Always keep his charge. Keep his statutes. Keep his ordinances. Keep his commandments. 
No doubt you may be familiar with Jesus' words to the disciples and some of their last moments together, the last hours leading up to his arrest and later his crucifixion. John 14, 15, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You will keep my commandments. Even the early church was given the same reminder. The apostle John in 2 John verse 6 said the same thing. He says, and this is love that we walk according to God's commands. So I've entitled this sermon once again, Being Motivated to Obey. The Christian can be and should be motivated to serve God, but for the right reasons. Ultimately, we obey God as an overflow of love in response to the overwhelming love of Jesus that we just heard in that last song. And so I want to give you some principles as to how we in our daily Christian life can be motivated to obey, not with some misguided fear, but as responsive love in view of the benefits that God promises to us when we obey him. Now, if you look in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, there's a lot of context that we don't get to share. But the book of Acts all centers on Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus commissioned a specific group of men. We call them the apostles. And he says, you're going to go out and you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to start in Jerusalem. You're going to go to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses when you receive power from the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, the apostles, they go back to Jerusalem. They pray for power from the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and they begin teaching and preaching boldly in Jesus' name. But as the book of Acts indicates, Luke the writer tells us that consequences soon follow. In Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, the apostles start suffering the consequences of that obedience. In Acts 3, 4, and 5, they start having these interactions with a court called the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see the second interaction in our text today. But Peter and John are the very first apostles arrested. In Acts chapter 4, they are taken before the Sanhedrin court. Think of it as a Supreme Court of Jerusalem. The 71 religious leaders are investigating Peter and John. And their specific question is, who is giving you the authority to preach and teach in Jesus' name? Back in Acts chapter 4, we're told that two men who presided over much of this court were Annas and Caiaphas. They were of the family of the high priest. And you may recognize those names because the gospel indicates to us that those two men were chiefly responsible for the plot against Jesus. And so I want you to understand the context here this morning. The apostles have now been arrested again. The night before, they have been put in prison. An angel of the Lord, back in chapter 5, has now released them. But the angel says, you go back to the temple, back where you got arrested, and share the same message again. And the guards rearrest the apostles the next morning. They bring them now before the same court, the same court that sentenced Jesus to death. And now we're going to see their second interaction. And so if you begin with me in verse 27, we're going to see what the high priest's words are. You can catch his attitude. You can catch his real motivation. His issue is not, do the apostles have a message of truth? His main issue is, how am I going to silence this message and keep control of the city? So look with me in verse 27. This picks up as the apostles are brought back before the Sanhedrin once again. We have the words of the high priest here in verse 27. Luke tells us when they had brought them, the apostles, they stood them before this council. And the high priest questions them saying, We gave you strict orders 
not to continue teaching in this name, the name of Jesus. And he says, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood, Jesus' blood, Jesus' death, he says, upon us. And so I want to pick up with this question of how do these apostles respond? How do they show us a very clear biblical understanding of obedience even as the cost is going to get really, really high? And so this morning I want to offer you five quick and hopefully very clear principles as to how we, just like these apostles, can be motivated to serve, motivated to obey God regardless of the cost. And as we go through each point, I want to give you a very simple phrase to maybe help you remember some of these truths. Here's the very first one this morning, and we're going to find it in verse 29. Peter's very first answer as he hears the words of the high priest is simply this, verse 29. He says, we must obey God rather than men. So number one this morning, you can find this in your insert. When it comes to your obedience to God, Your obedience to God extends beyond your responsibility to man. Your obedience to God extends beyond your responsibility to man. Now Luke doesn't give us all the details of this scene. But what he does give us I think is the most important detail. We never see anywhere in the book of Acts that the apostles try to resist arrest. We never see them try to escape without God's permission. We never see them even deny the council's permission to give them an investigation. But what we do see is that Peter and the apostles draw a clear line in the sand. They say, this is where we stand. We stand for God and not for man. Notice the words once again. Peter in verse 29, he says, we must obey God rather than men. This is an emphatic statement. Peter shows his heart. The apostles show where their true allegiance lies. It is in obedience to God and not in obedience to man. It's amazing how this high priest, even based on his words, even on his questioning of the apostles, he actually reveals that he is totally powerless to stand up against the message of the gospel. That's the message that these apostles have been preaching, a clear biblical message that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And the Sanhedrin court doesn't want anything to do with this message. They're seeking to silence the message. And they say, we forbade you. We we said it's forbidden to preach in his name. In Acts 4, you can read that account. They say, do not preach and teach in Jesus' name or else. But Peter and the apostles say, we're going to obey God rather than men. I want to give you a principle and you see it on the screen. When it comes to our allegiance, our allegiance is tied to the idea of what is preeminent in our life. Allegiance really just means loyalty. We don't give our loyalty to things that we don't deem worthy of our loyalty. We should be loyal to our country. We should be loyal to our families. We should be loyal to our church. We should be loyal to our employers. No doubt many of you are loyal to the New Orleans Saints. It's going to take you a whole long time, many years maybe, to get over how they're robbed the Super Bowl next week because of that referee in the last game. It's okay to have that kind of loyalty. But the question this morning is this. Who deserves our utmost loyalty? Who deserves our greatest allegiance? If it's not Jesus, then who is it? Consider what Paul said. This is Colossians chapter 1. He gives us a biblical principle of how preeminent Jesus is. How he is to have first place in all of our lives. This is Colossians 1 verse 15. 
Jesus, he says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All these things, he says, they've been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And Paul tells us the reason why. So that he himself will come to have first place, literally preeminence in everything. When it comes to the Christian life, it's very simple. If, and no doubt you will be faced with this, if you haven't already, you will, and probably years to come, the way our nation's going, if and when you're ever faced with the decision of standing for God or standing for man, know what God's word says. Your job is to stand for God rather than man. It goes beyond our responsibility to man. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are responsible to men. We have duties. We have responsibilities. We should have loyalty to the places and the jobs that God has given us to do. But our allegiance to him goes higher and it goes further. We should not hesitate as the apostles did not hesitate to stand where we need to stand. We can say, I believe with utmost confidence, the words of the psalmist. Psalm 118, verse 6 to 8. Here's what he said. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. For what can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look to satisfaction for all those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than in man. It's amazing, too, as these apostles are rejecting this counsel. They're really not rejecting this counsel. They're rejecting the false belief of this counsel. The calling of the Christian life is never really against any human being, but it is to take a stand for God. And I believe that even though our responsibility to God extends further than man, it is ultimately our allegiance to God that enhances our responsibility to man. Because notice what's happening here. Even as the apostles are standing in opposition to these religious leaders, they are using that as an opportunity to share the gospel message with them. So note number one, your obedience to God extends further, it extends beyond, it surpasses any responsibility that we have to man. And this leads us to number two this morning. Your obedience to God, though, the way it begins, the way it shows up in our life, is when we have a recognition of Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Your obedience to God begins, it lives and it dies, based on our recognition that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Look with me in verse 30. Peter and the apostles have just said, we must obey God rather than man. And here's the reason why in verse 30. Peter says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. And look in verse 31. Jesus, he, he is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand as a prince and as savior. We'll finish the verse in just a moment, but I want you to notice those two titles. What has given the apostles the boldness to stand boldly for Jesus Christ? It is the recognition that Jesus is not just savior, It is the recognition that Jesus is Lord. 
The word there, prince, in your Bible may also be leader in some of your translations. Both titles make it emphatically clear that when it comes to Jesus, he is co-equal with God. Jesus shares in the same authority as God. And so as these apostles are saying we stand for God, they are also saying we stand for Christ. But these religious leaders, as they're opposing Jesus, they're ultimately opposing God. Because look in verse 30, what is it that God has done with Jesus? They say the God of our fathers has raised him up, the same man that you killed, and God has raised Jesus up. He has exalted him, in verse 31, to give us two things, repentance and forgiveness. When it comes to Jesus and his title as Lord, it means that Jesus is truly the owner of everything. And so notice the second reminder today. Jesus' lordship implies ownership. If Jesus is not just our Savior, but if he's our Lord, then he possesses absolutely our lives. And we can go to him for help, but he deserves our only hope. And so here in verse 30, the apostles say, The God of our fathers has exalted Jesus. And so why are you rejecting him? We can summarize that. Jesus is Lord. And he's Savior. He is exalted in what he's accomplished for us. And he's qualified to save us because of who he is. Jesus is Savior, which means that he lives for us. But Jesus is Lord, which means that we ought to live for him. Jesus is Savior means that he deserves your faith. He deserves your trust. He deserves your belief. But the fact that he's Lord also means that he deserves your life. All of it belongs to him. And I want to tie this now to number three. When it comes to Jesus, we have to recognize him as Savior and Lord. And when we do that, when we obey God, it leads us into experiencing life just as God intended. What gave the apostles the ability to make this bold stand? And I want you to find this verse back in verse 20. When they were released the night before to go back to the same spot and get in the same trouble, God sent a messenger, an angel, And the angel gave a commandment. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 20. The angel tells the apostles, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And I want you to look in your Bibles there in verse 20. Depending on your translation, here in the New American Standard that I have, that word life has a capital L. Why is that? It's because the apostles... As they gave the consistent message of Jesus, they were giving the message of life, real life. What did Jesus say of himself? I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus gives us the opportunity to experience life as God intended. Look back in verse 31. Why has God exalted Jesus? Why has he given him the title of Savior and Lord? So that we can have two things. You'll notice there in verse 31, Jesus grants us repentance. And the second thing he gives us is forgiveness of our sin. When it comes to obedience with God, the way that we enjoy life to the fullest is when our sin is taken care of by the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to give you a good biblical principle for this. Go all the way back to the very first story you know in the Bible. Think of Adam and Eve. They experienced life as God intended. It was a life of perfect fellowship with God 
and with each other. But what caused them to lose that experience of life? It is that they bought the lie that a life apart from God's commands is a life that is better than with God's commands. Think of it this way. God created a perfect creation. He put all the creation at their disposal except for one thing. God said, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 2, God says, Adam, the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And if you ever read that section of Genesis, from now on I want you to ask a question. So why did God make the tree in the first place? Was it to lead to Adam's death? No, it was to lead to Adam's life. Every day that Adam and Eve stayed away from the tree, they were learning good from evil. But not by experiencing death and evil, but by experiencing the life that God created it to be. The life that they were promised was a life of perfect fellowship with God. Perfect obedience, where no sin and no death reign supreme. And so why is it that our lives are broken today? It's because we get trapped in that same lie. It is the lie that we fall for all the time. The lie that says life is better when we disobey God. Now, I want to take just a second look at the young people. Some of you upstairs, some of you in this room. I'm only 26. I'm not older than a lot of you. But I want to give you something that I want you to remember right now. And I wish I had somebody tell me this when I was your age every single day. And it's this truth, that if you really want to live life, if you really want to enjoy life, if you want to live life to the fullest, the way God intended it to be, then the way you do that is to stay faithful to God. You don't have to be another statistic. You don't have to go through a season of disobedience in your life where you drop church and you drop that relationship only to come back to it years down the road when you have a family and you realize that you got to get your heart right. I'm sure many of you could testify to that same truth in your life where you wish you avoided years and years of pain and consequences if you had just stayed faithful in your obedience to God. When it comes to obedience, it leads us into life, the life that God has always intended, a life of perfect fellowship apart from sin. Think of it this way. When it comes to living, the third principle, living implies loving. We truly live when we love God. We truly live when we're actively serving him. We truly live when we fall in love with the giver of life. And the first way that we obey the giver of life is by responding to his call for repentance and forgiveness. And when we get that right, the next thing we do is we stay faithful to him. Not because we're trying to earn it, but because of the tremendous love that he's given to us. Here's what Paul said of himself in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, but it's no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The offer of life is always on the table for all of us. It's always on the table. And it always comes down to a basic decision. Do we want to choose life in obedience to God, or do we want to buy into the lie that a life apart from God is better? And the end leads to death. 
The end leads to consequence. The end leads to destruction. There is no better way to live than in getting your heart right with God and living by that day by day by day. Now the apostles make these strong responses and they have one more to say in verse 32. So I want you to consider number four. What's the last thing they say? Well, they give us another principle, number four this morning. When it comes to your obedience to God, your obedience to God prepares you to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. Your obedience to God prepares you, equips you, grants you the opportunity to serve him in power. Look with me in verse 32. Peter and the apostles are given a testimony of Jesus. And now they're going to give a testimony for how Jesus is not just working in the lives of all people, but how Jesus is working in their lives personally, individually. Verse 32. Peter and the apostles say, we are witnesses of these things. The exaltation of Jesus, the forgiveness that he offers. Peter and all of them say, we know this. We are witnesses of these things. And if you look at the end of the verse, he says, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now you see that word witness there. We understand what a witness does. A witness is someone that gives firsthand knowledge from firsthand experience. One writer said that when it came to the apostles, they were witnesses for Jesus Christ. Witnesses are essentially the people that spoke of God. And it was impossible to stop them because it's impossible to stop the truth. And if you look there in your Bible, there in verse 32, that word translated witnesses, it comes from a Greek word, martis. And that's where we get our English word martyr from. And when it came to the days of the early church, as well as in many areas in our world today, the true witnesses of Jesus Christ have to be willing to pay that cost. They have to be willing to let that witness be something that's worthy of their life. The testimony of a human witness of God is someone who is willing to give that witness regardless of the circumstances. And what's amazing here in verse 32 is the apostles say, we are witnesses of these things. That God would deem it worthy to use us in his plan of redemption. Is that not an awesome truth? That this message of Jesus, his glory, his majesty that goes beyond all time and all understanding. God can use us as his witnesses to share the same thing. And why are the apostles once again so bold in this? Well, it's because in verse 32, they also have the Holy Spirit. Peter and the apostles say that the Holy Spirit is also the witness. He is the divine witness. The Holy Spirit backs up the work of Jesus in our lives. It's amazing that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all talked about in these verses. God exalted the Son and gave him the glory that he always had in eternity. The Son offered his life for forgiveness and repentance of sins. And now the Holy Spirit come and works in the believer to transform us to be worthy witnesses of that same message. And I love the end there of verse 32. They say we are witnesses. The Holy Spirit is a witness. And God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So I want to give you this fourth principle, this fourth phrase. When it comes to obedience... Obedience carries with it the idea of opportunity. 
when it comes to our obedience of God, it allows us to be those faithful witnesses and God to use us in the opportunities of life to share this message. No doubt you're familiar with the life of D.L. Moody, or at least his name. Even though he grew up completely poor and uneducated, only about four years of school experience, in the 1800s, he became one of the most effective Christian leaders in all of history. Some have estimated that he got to share the gospel message with more than 100 million people. And at the beginning of his ministry, when he was still a young man, he credits a preacher who gave him a message that he never forgot. He says, when I was a young man, I heard a preacher say this. When I was starting in ministry, the preacher said, this world has yet to see what God will do with one person who is totally surrendered to him. And that night, D.L. Moody got on his hands and his knees and he said, God, make me that one person. Give me that one opportunity to be completely sold out for you. And it's amazing that his obedience gave him that opportunity. But notice there in verse 32, this message is not just for the apostles. This message is not just for the greatest leaders in all of history. He says there in verse 32 that the Holy Spirit is for all who obey Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Every believer can be transformed by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit as he shapes us and molds us to be more like Jesus. But it comes back to a choice of whether or not we want to obey him and give him our lives. Jesus taught of the Holy Spirit in John 16. Verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come. I don't think we'll ever fully comprehend it. And I know that we would oftentimes want to reject it. But we have it better with the Holy Spirit than the disciples had with Jesus right next to them. And Jesus picks up there in verse 12. He says, I have so many more things to say, but I can't do them now. He says, but when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, he will guide you into truth. But he won't speak of his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you. Verse 14, he will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit is the person of God. The Spirit of Christ that works within our hearts to back up the work that Jesus has already done. Where he changes us from the inside out. And the Holy Spirit wants to lead you right here, right now, immediately into the service of Jesus Christ. And your obedience serves as a way and as an opportunity to be prepared to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to look quickly in verse 33 as we close in just a couple minutes. Look at the final part of this passage today. How do these religious leaders respond? Well, verse 33 says, When they heard this, when they heard this message, they're cut to the quick, and they intended to kill the apostles. And I never want you to forget this, but who is the they there in verse 33? The they are the religious leaders. You would think out of all the people in this passage... All the people that we would expect to be obeying God, would it not be these leaders? And yet they're totally in opposition. So let me close with number five. When it comes to your obedience with God, your obedience to God separates real worship, authentic worship, genuine worship. It takes that and separates it from superficial activity. 
it really shows whether we are sincere in our relationship to Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you this morning how much you're doing in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking how active are you in the church. I'm asking you, do you love God? Do you love the Son of God? Do you love the Spirit of God? Do you seek to make Christ preeminent in your life? That's what the apostles did. And they were willing to even risk their lives now here in verse 33. God's going to have a different consequence in store. But let me just close with this. Your salvation should carry with it the idea of sincerity. And when it comes to your level of service, God does not care so much about your service as much as he cares about your heart. And so we have to be open and willing to let God show us our heart and ask the hard question, are we motivated to obey him? In closing, I read a, a really short story of a little boy who was in a church. And as the offering plate was coming down the aisle, he started reaching in his pocket for something to give. And he was really sad at first, and he was disappointed with himself that he had nothing to offer. And within a matter of seconds, the offering plate was coming to his row, and it was being passed person to person to person. And this little boy was next, but he had nothing to give. And so he did something that nobody expected. He put the offering plate on the floor. He got up out of the pew, and he put his feet inside the plate. And that little boy taught the whole church a lesson that day. And it's the lesson that God is no much concerned about your activity as much as he's concerned about you. We can be motivated by all the superficial stuff, all the exterior stuff, but at the end of the day, it comes down to a question of obedience. So I ask you in closing this morning, are you motivated like these apostles were to serve Jesus Christ, to love him, and to let that love change every aspect of who we are. Are we motivated to obey? Are we motivated to serve? Not out of fear, but out of love in view of all the benefits that Christ offers us when we obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. And we know that in a passage like this, it's a message for all of us in this room. Because it forces us to consider the majesty of Jesus Christ. And our willingness to obey him, our willingness to submit to him, not out of fear, but in view of the love that he has shown us with his sacrifice. And so I do know that in a room this big, there may be many people, if not just even one person, that has never taken that first step of obedience in receiving the forgiveness that you offer us. So would you work in their hearts right now to motivate them to obey? where they would make the decision to repent and turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus alone because he is Savior and he is Lord. And yet for the rest of us in this room, no doubt many of us have already made that decision. We've taken that first step of obedience. Would you compel us and motivate us to stay obedient in our Christian life? Help us not serve you out of fear, but help us to serve you out of love, out of all the benefits that you offer us, life itself, not a life of abundance, but an abundant life where we experience the life that you intended us to enjoy. And so I ask that you would just bless these closing moments in this time of invitation. Would you have your way in our service and in our lives? And we give this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.